This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hey guys, welcome to another great episode of Material Is Your Business on Mouth Media Network. We know that textiles, they impact our health every day. From the gowns and scrubs that a doctor or patient wears in a hospital, to safe sleepwear for children, to the drapes and sheets used in the environments we're in. There are better ways of doing things. This is the conversation with the expert in the industry where we're going to get into it. It's Rani Shamam. She is the president at Shamron Mills. And the show starts right now. My name is Rani Shamam, and my company is Shamron Mills. And what I love about materials is solving problems and making deals. This is Material Is Your Business, a podcast covering the science, technology, and business of materials and manufacturing. Produced by Mouth Media Network, powered by Sennheiser. Your hosts for this episode are Stephanie Benedetto, CEO and co-founder of Queen of Raw, and Samantha Cortez, international consultant and founder of Samantha's Platform. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie Benedetto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantha Cortez. Hola. And our guest today is Ronnie Shamam, the president at Shamron Mills. Hi, Ronnie. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. You know, in the first segment, we just want to give our listeners kind of a Reader's Digest thumbnail sketch of who you are and what you do. Uh, I started my company, Shamron Mills, in 1983, um, and it evolved from just making a hospital gown before there were imports coming into this country, and uh, it today is a company that sells to distributors of textile items to hospitals and institutions, as well as to other manufacturers who largely manufacture overseas and for whom the quantities are not important enough for them to get involved in, if you understand. So they'll come to me to make something that's a little unusual that may be 20 dozen a hundred dozen, even five hundred dozen, or si- or six dozen, and uh, and we get it done. They put it in our hands. They tell us what they want, uh, for the most part, and we make it and ship it to their customers. And you're making and shipping everything from the textiles to the finished goods of it's gowns. Finished goods, as a rule, and uh, they could be a hospital gown in a variety of different colors to be used in psych areas, to be used in uh, VA hospitals, to be used in the operating room. Um, Many of these items, uh, we don't even know where they go, but we know the criteria that we must meet, whether it's uh, the color or most importantly, that it stand up to the industrial laundry, 180 degrees in temperature, uh, that because they need to um, sterilize, uh, that they go into autoclaves, that we have the, the findings, the snaps that don't get crushed in these giant machine, laundry machines. So uh, we know all of those details, and then we can put together the product that they need because their customer requests it. And we get it done for them. So there's certain specific criteria for the medical industry that we probably don't even realize as we're sitting in, you know, unfortunately, if we're in a doctor's office or, you know, and for the doctor themselves, as well as for the drapes and and, and sheets that are in the room. Um, Drapes used in the operating room, for example, not drapes, uh, curtain drapes, but drapes for the operating room that are used during procedures. Uh, that have specs, they are a certain size, they may have um, an opening that covers or uncovers the part of the body that's being worked on, and a doctor, a particular doctor, will have his own requirements, and these superstar doctors get what they want, and they will ask us to make these drapes 
And I, I can imagine, too, for children and, and sleepwear, there's even an additional kind of constraint. For children's sleepwear, we have to follow the federal children's sleepwear regulations. And so the fabric that we use and the finished garment that we make gets tested and um, and meets these federal requirements. This is such a, a, a specific, important kind of niche industry. How did you get into this and, and how did it come about? Hunger. <laughs> that, uh, I think that that's what happens with many people. I had been a teacher in my first life. And, um, and then when I came to live in New York in 1969, I no longer taught again. And then I did a bunch of things, ending up uh, with someone who taught me uh, garment manufacturing. And then I took that and went uh, to work for rehab workshop for the handicapped. And uh, they have sewing shops in many of those rehab workshops. And I learned how they worked, and I learned from people I met along the way. And uh, then I worked for the blind in their manufacturing uh, department. And I um, had uh, quality assurance people from the Defense Department in my office who taught me. We had jig makers and engineers helping break down jobs so that these people with uh, disabilities could do a portion of a job and have meaning and get paid. And then after that, I worked for a company that made scrubs and gowns and other items in Soho before it was Soho, when there was still some light manufacturing down there. And, um, and then when they closed, I was sort of forced to start my own. And that's what I did. Went back to my friends in the rehab workshops. And I said, you want to sew? I will give you all the work you need. As if I knew what I was talking about, what I was promising at the time. And, uh, and I still am working 35 years later with a rehab workshop in upstate New York who's doing sewing for me. And that's just one of the, you know, my production Fantastic. locations. Yeah. So, Ronnie, um, I've known you, I would say, close 15, to 20. 20 years, yeah. 20 years, yeah. It's, um, and to be quite honest, you're the person I always look up to. Thank you. You... you are very intuitive on what's going around in your surroundings and sense of the the hospital and 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 the business the day to day and you change and modify your business and you're always on top of the game so um that being said i i would love to understand what is one of your biggest challenges and 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 how did you you know pass through that every day is a different challenge. And as the textile industry has changed, fewer mills, fewer converters, less available, um, I've had to adapt. I've had to start making some of my finished goods and raw materials overseas as well. But I would still say more than half of what we do is U.S. mills, U.S. printing and dyeing. And certainly uh, U.S. sewing. Not in New York, but certainly in the country. And why is that Im important to you? Why does that become part of the spirit and the ethos of what you do? Because I saw it all over your website. It said kind of made in America, yeah. made in U.S. And obviously right now it, it, it is a trend and it's important, but it seems to have always been a part of what you're doing. Because it's small runs, quick turnaround. Timing. Timing. timing on time it's yeah. actually also the unique specs and, and small runs yeah i mean how are you going to do 10 dozen garments or 10 dozen units of anything overseas we know one of the hardships sometimes of doing things domestically there are those advantages but then costs can can become a little bit higher and presumably is it how is your business model able to mitigate for that is it what you bring in house and having your own mill um, able to manage that better so um when my friends in the industry who are bringing container loads of commodity 
into the country, they are competing for nickels and dimes and pennies to sell their product versus the other guy's product, which may be totally the same. What we do is so specific and so small and so inconsequential in their grand scheme of things that they're willing to pay me the additional bucks that it costs us to make it here, which doesn't mean that I don't buy fabric at the best price I can buy it or try to get it done as efficiently and uh, reasonably as possible. But I'm not the cheapest guy in town. And, um, and my customers will pay for it because, number one, it costs me more to make it. And number two, they want it. And it's actually a customization of the, the sector of where they're operating in the room. You carve out the hole for them. and Oh, and those the, drapes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, the drapes of the garments. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? About that? So we make these um, drapes. They're called lap drapes or laparotomy drapes or eye sheets used in the operating room. Some of them used in many hospitals are disposable. Some of them are reusable, and that's me. That's us. That's all of us. And so we use uh, textiles. Mostly they're polycottons. Uh, we get the dimensions that the customer wants and the size of the hole, which we refer to as a fenestration. And um, and the shape of it could be round, it could be a rectangle. And we make it. We cut it out. We make it. So how much of this kind of business practice over time has evolved with your direct conversations with your clients, with the hospitals? And then how what are you seeing changing in the industry now and where we're going? <clears throat> so I don't deal with hospitals. I wouldn't know how to sell to a hospital, but I deal with distributors and and manufacturers who have sales force. Those sales people become my sales people, and um, and they mostly drive what we make because they tell us what they want, and in that conversation where they're telling us what they want, I may say, may I suggest that we do it this way, that you, uh, and they'll, they may bring that suggestion to their customer and many times they'll go for it. I've been doing it so long. You really have become an expert and a leader in this incredibly niche, but important industry. And I think one of the things I noticed when I went to your website was in addition to the, the kind of made in the U S focus, when you look at the the range of custom textiles that you offer, there were all of these colors and patterns and brightness to them that when you think of the traditional hospital setting and hospital gowns, you know, it's a certain drab based color. And we're all dressed the same. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the choices of why you offer that and what that means to the psyche of the doctor or the patient or whomever is wearing it. It I, obviously has an impact. I offer it because they ask me for it. Or I see that it's out there and I put it on the website or I, in a conversation, I'll offer um, the choices. But many times an institution will use colors to color code a different area in their facility to bring attention to a patient with dementia, for example, that they don't want to get lost and lose, you know, this patient. Um so there are reasons uh, for specific colors. In some areas, they'll color code per size. So I may be making small, medium, large up to 5X, and the customer wants each size in a different color. That's so that's a lot of colors. That is. And if you think about it, obviously, where else do you go typically for something up to 5X? I mean, people aren't always thinking about, but should be that we are a range of sizes in the world and we need to address this. Everything from, you know, prenatal infants all the way through to... So yesterday we got an order for four dozen sets of pajamas in the color eggplant in size 10XL. Wow. Wow. Can you do it? Oh, yeah. Yep. I How didn't have even... any eggplant fabric yesterday. 
And then I sent an email out to a bunch of people, and I got my eggplant. As a matter of fact, I got probably over 2,000 yards of eggplant yesterday, which I bought, all of it, because there is no eggplant around. How do you even grade for a a size like that? Do you already have established grading markers? We have markers up to 10x in the CAD. Yeah. That is, it, it is important and not everyone knows where to go or what to do. But just to be clear, as I understand it, you're not just medical, right? That there are other industries you serve, you dealt in research facilities, power plants, government agencies, heavy industry. Um, can you talk a little bit about why those cross industries and what the similarities and differences in the requirements for them are? The garments that we make for any of those industries are on the simple side. We don't use, we don't manufacture a highly tailored garment, but some of the customers are industrial laundries and they service, it could be the nuclear power plants. And so they use a scrub type garment to go under their coverall. And when these get, I think they get washed maybe a few times. And when they get contaminated, they're destroyed. Do they give you uh, any unique um, specifications, as in fire retardant? And uh, they could, but it, tradi- no, we don't. Some places like all cotton. Uh, most of the time, they'll accept our polycotton poplins. So, speaking of all cotton, did you see about the hyperbaric uh, area that we that's growing? Tell us a the little growing bit about area. It. So the hyperbaric yes. units. Apparently, I don't know a lot about the medical application, but what I've learned is that these oxygen-rich settings are used to treat wounds, and wounds are found in people with diabetes. And uh, people with diabetes can tend to have weight issues. So we make the garments. They must be all cotton including the label with the washing instructions and the size, has to be made of all cotton. The thread must be cotton. The binding and the neck must be cotton, or any in the ties, all cotton, everything. We certify, and if if something, if a mistake is made, as I've seen, that we find that the thread was not correct, we have had this situation. We have to reject that. We can sell it to another part of our industry, but not for hyperbaric. So who does that kind of testing, reviewing, certification we do if it. required? We do it. You do in-house? Do it. Yeah. That's yeah. The, yeah it, it's an interesting field, and I know, I, and presumably in some areas of what you're doing, you, do you also look to any external certification yes, bodies we, for yeah. sleepwear with children yeah. and maybe the other The children sleepwear, absolutely. Uh, when we bring in the fabric or the finished goods, we send both uh, out to a, a domestic lab uh, for certification, uh, when we bring in the fabric and finished goods, because that some of that is made in China, some of it we make here, but some of it made in China. I don't. I tell them it must meet these requirements. I don't ask them for their for their test results because I'm going to send it out anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, because my name is on it, we're responsible. End of story. I love that. Taking responsibility and ownership. Let's pause there. We'll be back soon on Material Is Your Business right after this. Hey, everybody. This is Vikram Iyer, former advisor to President Barack Obama. Have you been opening your Twitter account or Facebook feeds or even just talking to families and friends and wondering what the heck is going on in this country? Well, it's not as bad as you think, but we're going to unpack that for you. Join me at the American Enough podcast on the Mouth Media Network as we unpack the policies, executive orders, and daily kerfuffles that are shaping not just this administration, but the modern face of America's politics. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Material Biz Show. That's Material B I Z Show. 
and hear all of our episodes on materialisyourbusiness.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. Welcome back to Material Is Your Business. We're here with Rani Shamam. And we were talking a little bit on break about supply chains. Obviously, integral to you and your business and what you're doing is being able to manage your supply chain effectively. Who are those distributors and converters? Where are your products coming in from and where are they going out to? And in this current political, social, economic environment that's so tumultuous and changing, how are you able to both maintain your current relationships and grow new ones to grow a business? Uh, As the textile industry in the United States has shrunk and largely gone offshore, uh, it's harder for us to find textiles. We buy from mills less than we buy from jobbers and converters and brokers. Uh, Not so much brokers, but jobbers are a big source of supply. They'll tend to end up with smaller quantities, which I could use in eggplant, for example. I'm not going to buy 30,000 yards of eggplant, but I may buy five, or if I'm desperate, two. Um, So some of our suppliers are in Pakistan. I have a mill in Pakistan that I buy fabric from. They make it for me. And finished goods, they'll make it for me, my label to our specs. And uh, this is a family that I respect a lot, and I trust them to make our product. I have a an agent in, um, more than an agent, a company in China uh, that does our uh, Chinese seersucker, FR children's sleepwear fabric and finished goods. So often when we make fabric overseas, we'll also make finished goods out of that fabric and bring them both back. So if I'm bringing back size large and extra large because there we can use some volume in those sizes, I'll bring back fabric. So somebody wants that 5X or 10X, I can have the same fabric. It doesn't matter. And quite frankly, if I'm doing a bathrobe in Searsucker, if I make it in China or if I make it in Pennsylvania, Nobody knows whether it's made in China or Pennsylvania. It's the same fabric. It's got my label. So when it comes to textiles, um, the actual fabrics, a lot of them are from overseas because there's a lot of mills that have been diminished here. Um, Do you think that the mills have any way of surviving coming back to the U.S. at all? Well, there there are still mills. There are a couple. There are a few. And they're busy because when they're doing 807 projects, uh, NAFTA, CAFTA, they have the fabrics need to come from here to go to Mexico or the Dominican or wherever. So there are those that and and government products that require U.S. mills. So um, uh. So there are mills, and I get their fabrics, and I'm, I I am able to um, network my way into getting what I need. And that seems to be kind of a the one of the amazing advantages that you've had, and the success you've had is with your ability to get in to close those deals and to market yourself. Obviously, a successful woman in business, been doing this. I think it's for close to thirty years. Thirty five. Thirty five mm-hmm. years. Congratulations! And it was funny when we were talking offline for a bit. You said you know you considered yourself in some ways still in the schmata business, and obviously, but there's such great powerful applications as this impacts our health and as you're affecting the business need, essentially. Um, Wonder if you can touch a little bit on the marketing tools that you've used in order to navigate that and stand out from the crowd and other competitors. So if you last uh, 35 years in a business, you get known. And um, there aren't very many people who do what we do. And my customers who have large sales forces, they have customer service folks, They've gotten to know us over the years. And there are a couple of trade shows uh, that I go to religiously, one of them specifically that I every two years. And um, I just network like crazy. I never have a booth. I walk the show. I visit my customers. I help them if they have a booth. I help them if they need me. 
Um, you always meet somebody on the floor after so many years, you know. So they're my salespeople. I, I don't have any salespeople. It's amazing. She's um, um, she used to. She's still in the building that I used to be in. And um, what's outstanding is being in New York. She's only a group of less than a handful. Most of the time, it's three, right? We're no three more than of us that. In the three of us, and uh, run a multi-million dollar company. Yeah. <laughs> And we I, could do more. You could do more. I know. can always do more. Always room for opportunity. But that that's the hunger, obviously, in you as you're satisfying this business need. And it's interesting to hear how as much has changed with social media and marketing and the digital space that so much of your business is still that personal one-on-one interaction. And I think you even spoke about when you're dealing with your um, mills and factories in other countries, but you have it's a family business and a relationship you've built with them. And that's why you trust them. Um, you, how, if at all, as you're looking to grow the business, are, where are you looking to develop those kinds of relationships? And are there certain parts of the world you'd also look to to grow in? So I'm a 20th century girl. And I'm dealing in a 21st century world. And I think the next step would be to find some younger talent, entrepreneurial. We're pretty techy. But they would, you know, tech savvy with energy. You know, I have other things, too, that I like to do in, in addition to my business. So I think that I need to be energized a little bit. Um, and that's what I'm thinking about for the future. So obviously also impressive to you, a, a lot of kind of factories and mills don't even have a website. And you had a very clear, informative website with ability to order swatches. And how much, if anything, do you rely on that kind of digital sphere on your website? The website is a tool, the tool for my customers. So that when they're calling on um, a buyer at an institution, they can either show it to them, cut and paste it, send it to them. A, a picture. Um, we don't do sales on the website. And I think my s- website could be updated a little bit. But speaking to that, we had computers in 1985. They weren't the right computers at the time, but we had computers. And and I thought that it was going to be important down the road to to have that technical technology, have that technology because now we couldn't imagine existing. I smile every now and then. I get an invoice from somebody that's handwritten. I mean, can you imagine? Or a (laughs) PO that's handwritten. Well, I I can appreciate that. My family had been in the Schmata business, too, for over 100 years. And I'd seen the older school way of doing things. And in some cases, yes, things still are done by hand. But obviously, you can see that as a tool and as an additional force, the power of digital and technology to kind of empower our businesses and support it. But you're right. There has to be a base business there and a core message there. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the inspiration for your business and what kind of that core message that drives you or that you go back to when you think about what you're doing and what you're building? Building? I think it's building. Well, no, I think that we can always, we, uh, we can always be building. I am, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about what's next, where next, um, personally and for the business. So, uh, you know, it isn't easy to operate in this garment center of ours uh, and the the reason that I'm in the garment center is not because I have to be there like my fashion friends. They need to be there for their market. I don't need to be there. I'm there because I love it and because of the energy. But, you know, as I get older and I have to make plans, I have to think about where this, I can still get what I need from the business, uh, the energy, the fun, the networking, the friends, vendors and customers, you know, um, and take care of myself and my employees and um and that may be a little convoluted but that's what you asked and um that's how what came to my mind no, I appreciate that. And kind of as you look at the future and the next step for you personally and professionally, do you see either in this industry or another industry an opportunity or an untapped resource that people are not paying attention to or another need that could drive potentially that next 2.0 version of where you're going? I'm not sure. I'm exploring that. I'm, hmm. I'm thinking about it. I'm talking to people. 
about even business consultants about who I am and what I want to be when I grow up. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of difficult because it's um, when, like, what it, when I had my company, you're like a one-man show, even though if you have a staff, you're the one that runs all the operations. So even looking forward, you, you kind of want to delegate a lot of those responsibilities so it's marketable out there for the future. So um, what are you doing anything along those lines for, for, for the future? Because I know... You mean selling the company or something? Yeah, I'm not. I'm just looking forward Look, for... No, that's a legitimate question yeah. because, yeah. I mean, if you know how old I am, then you... You know, then you know I, and all of us have to sort of plan for the future. Um, oh, Ronnie, I didn't any way mean that. I meant no, I couldn't sell my company because it was only me. about that at all. I mean, it's just a fact. So um, I've been thinking about you know, do you how do you sell a business that's so personal? Yes, that you know all every little detail, every order that comes into our email box, which is what we prefer, um, is a different order. We have to treat each one separately. Now, it may be more of the same, and we know about it, but we have to look at it to make sure it is more of the same. Um, and so there was a point I said, oh, maybe I'll you know try to find somebody maybe in the industry and to buy the company. And I've sort of backed off from that because I don't want to not be involved. I want to be involved. I want to have more time to do some of the other things I do. I want to have an income. I want to uh, have this legacy move on. So I'm starting to think about uh, bringing in perhaps talent. And then, and that will be a way for it to continue. And that would also be the legacy for the company could, you know, down the road. Well, and it's such an interesting time right now, right? Because people are becoming so much more aware of the technical textiles and their health and how these impacts people every single day that potentially for you and your business, there's huge opportunity there as it grows to kind of get into that and um, and, and those new markets and really broaden uh, w what you're already doing, which is an incredible base and offering even more, but around where, where everyone's going with sustainability in mind as well. And um, that's what I was, um, the, one of the questions that I had next. Are you looking into the future as in the new technologies that are coming you know, into? Like, you, tech, mentioned tech, tech, yeah. you mentioned it. And it's a, the, I need to really, uh, there are so many technical fabrics that can be, uh, that are applied. We have knowledge of them, uh, of some of them. We know the people who've developed some of these. Some of them are for healthcare. Uh, the problem is that as Fabulous as these, some of these textiles are, the fact that they do the job, and there's some technology granted. When it comes to hospital linens and textile items, the institutions don't want to pay more. So we're limited by that. They, when hospitals are buying MRI machines or leasing them from, you know, the giant GEs of the world, um, or, you know, life-saving devices, they sort of get more, they're more a little more important than the gown or the sheet. Don't you think? It depends what the sheet does and depends what the gown does. And well, how long they're going to be wearing it for. I well, mean, you think of people who unfortunately have to be in a hospital environment for long, long periods. That is something touching their body and their skin for months, years upon years. So the implications could potentially be more. It's interesting. We had on uh, the show earlier um, a physician-led company called Allergy Standards, which was all uh, about kind of finding new ways to both certify materials as well as protect and prevent certain allergens. And, and irritants from, from affecting us because at the end of the day, whether it's in a hospital setting or in a home, these are things touching our bodies every day. So it's interesting. It kind of opens up the door. Antimicrobial. Sure. Yeah. Hyperallergen. That, the problem with them is do they last in the laundry? Do these? That's what I was going to say. Do they last? Mm -hmm. uh, and how much do they cost? Because one of the things that I saw um, uh, recently is the, they have a, a shirt that you could put on and it senses your heartbeat. So um, it's, it's got a sensor built, it's, in. It built in into it. So how much 
more the hospital will pay for a gown that has it versus an additional device that's put onto the to the patient, even though it's very uncomfortable. So I could see where you're, you know, will they spend that much more money or if they compare both prices and look at the different budgets? So the if, if a customer of mine, a distributor or another manufacturer says, hey, Ronnie, we're looking for uh, a gown, a garment that has a sensor or a device in it. And this is, and we'll provide the device because mm-hmm. that, but you make the garment for us. We'll provide the device to you. You'll put it in the seam, in the hem, in the whatever. Um, I would do it. I would take a stab at doing it for sure. Because we are driven by their requirements. Mm-hmm. I've had patents. I've had done this and that. It's meaningless to have the patent if you don't have the sales. I think that's and the also- first thing a lot of people go and do. They have this ingenious idea and they spend thousands and thousands of dollars on patents. But when it comes to, by the time they finish with the process of, the, of, of, of creating that patent, it's like it's already out there. It's already out there in some certain way, and that other person already manipulated the market. So it's like uh, when, I, when I talk to people, it's like, okay, I understand the aspect of patents, but just be careful. First, test out what you are doing to see if there's a market out there before you've spent all invest all that money in the patents. And the lawyer in me can't help but mentioning as uh, as I was a lawyer my prior life, um, you know, it's only good also if you not only have the sales, but then you have the funding to go enforce it all over the world. Absolutely. And if not, okay, you've made Why your bother? recipe public yeah. and, you know, you know there you have it. Ego uh, drives you. You, you want to do it. You know you can do it. I've, I know that I had a great idea and it's still a great idea. But who cares? I, you know. Well, I care now. I want to hear what, what's hear? this idea. What's the patent? Oh, about a gown that, you know, instead of opening in the back, closes in the front, has all the telemetry pockets and this and that. And um, it's a great design. Uh, patients can close it by themselves because nobody has the range of motion to, uh, to be able to tie their own patient gown in the back. Right. Um, so it's still a good idea, but I'm not in front of the nursing supervisor or the purchasing agent who makes that decision. Although interestingly enough, I think you are seeing at least out there right now in the industry in the movement, slightly different but similar when there are children and individuals who have autism, right? And they want to be empowered as individuals to be able to dress themselves, um, but they can't because of buttons, because of closures. And so now we're seeing clothing come out where they can just put it on over their head and it's the same front and backwards so they don't have to know which side it is and there are no buttons and zippers to manipulate and it seems to be a growing movement. So there may be opportunity Adaptive clothing. That's called adaptive. yes, adaptive, yeah. So you know, and, and I've, we've also seen, I think, in the hospital setting, there some of the nurses and doctors are starting to want more trendy, more fashionable, but also functional clothing. So um, yeah, idea may come to light. You never know, <laughs> Ronnie. I've known you um, for the past um, close to twenty years in the garment center. We actually used to share a space um, in the same building, and I was wondering, um, giving advice to the people out there, what do you think is the most important thing that you could, you could um, give to anybody opening up a business, not necessarily fashion, just across the board um, in industries, the textile? I think and if you want to start a business, you need to use your unique uh, set of experiences and knowledge. You, you can't get too self-important. You can't go out spending money on, you know, high price rents and, uh, you know, space. And you have to keep your nose to the grindstone, work hard, network even harder, uh, and make sure you have enough money to do what you're going to do. Don't over, don't spend on inventory that you don't know that you're going to sell. Um, and be very careful that you get paid from your customers. So that's actually uh, very interesting. So how was it that you started your business? So I was a single mother with uh, an eight-year-old or some something like that. And I was seeing a man who uh, uh, 
very nice man. We were together a couple of years. It was really progressing nicely. I was working for this company downtown and uh, that closed and I needed to do something. And someone in the industry said, you should make hospital gowns. You could have a nice little business. And somebody else agreed. And I went home and I said to Bernie, who's unfortunately been not with us for almost 17 years, I said, can you imagine this? So-and-so said, and somebody else agreed, I could have a nice little business. And he said, yeah, I think you should do it. And not only that, I will put up the money. So I said, really, you do that for me? Blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, I went out and I put together a plan with those rehab workshops I told you about before and met a few people uh, in the textile world. That was the scary part, finding the textiles that I needed. And I proceeded to work with these rehab workshops. At the beginning, I probably ended up working with a half a dozen of them and provided work for people with disabilities uh, for many years. Finally, we outgrew a lot of it. I had It was too complicated having a finished goods and raw material all over the place. And, um, and that was before we were computerized. Now you can track it by location. You don't have to do what we would have to do with a piece of paper in those days. And, um, so he financed me and, um, what happens in business, he kept putting money in and kept putting money in and kept putting money in and, you know, it just doesn't end and he supported my son and me. And we ended up getting married. He, that didn't dissuade him. And, um, and he was very proud that we got to a certain point. In the last 17 years uh, since he's been gone, I'm, I, I'm proud to say that I've even taken it in a, in a bigger way. So um, there are some lessons there. That's another conversation, but I'm very uh, grateful that I had a mentor, uh, an angel, uh, somebody who trusted me, and I trusted him. He was always on my side. He was always um, there to support me emotionally uh, as well as financially. So that was, I have a, a, a little story that I, I think is humorous about trade shows and bringing him in the early days to these trade shows. And we would go to, say, Atlanta. In those days, there were lots of trade shows in Atlanta. Bobbin Show, right? The Bobbin Show and the Clean Show. And um, and he would um, come with me and we'd go to visit the booths and I'd introduce him to people. And invariably, people would talk to him. They would look over me and talk to him. And I finally realized, didn't have to didn't take me too long to realize I had to leave him home. <laughs> I said, I'll go to the show. You come for the last day and we'll spend the weekend in New Orleans, Orlando, wherever sure. it was. But prob it could still happen, but it's in the mid eighties it happened yes. more. Much more often. Yeah. That way I, I think it's cute. It's not cute. It's it's upsetting, but we've evolved a little bit. Yeah, it was really hard when starting the business. Hispanic women alone in the industry. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, at the and beginning, the people beginning. thought I was a front for my former boss. Yes, that was it. That's a great message. Let's pause there. Yeah. Back soon with our final segment on Material Is Your Business right after this. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Rako. I'm one of the hosts of Fashion Is Your Business, another great show on Mouth Media Network. If you like the podcast you're listening to, Material Is Your Business, then I bet you're going to love Fashion Is Your Business, which intersects fashion, technology, and innovation, and also American Fashion Podcast, which Harper's Bazaar calls for the true fashion nerd at heart. Both shows and a whole bunch of other great podcasts are all available at MouthMediaNetwork.com. And when you do listen, let us know you heard about them on Material Is Your Business. Thanks a lot. And now back to the show. Welcome back 
to Material Is Your Business. We're here with Ronnie Shamam, and it's time for... And now, it's Remnants. Remnants. That's right. Fun, personal questions, just where we want to get to know you a little bit better. And who wants to go first? I'll go first. Um, So, Ronnie, obviously, you've had a very successful business over, now you said, 35 years, and it's still growing. Can other than the present, is there a particular time or period over those years in your life that you loved for a personal or professional reason? Any time in, in your life that stood out to you and why? Now. Simply because it's I'm here. Um, I'm doing everything I want to do uh, today. There may be something else tomorrow, but I, I have a very rich life. I uh, serve as a trustee at a college in upstate New York. Um, I get to watch young people become educated so that they have a place to work when they're through with college. At our school, our students get jobs. Um, I uh, have started buying real estate in upstate New York. So I'm in I have a separate little business on the side. And um, I have a house on the Hudson River, um, right where, like two blocks from where they manufactured detachable collars. You don't know about detachable collars. It was one of the biggest industries. Do you know about this, Smith? Yes. Um, industries, it was like industrial revolution. Remember that in the 1700s, people would make their own clothes and their shirts that their husbands went to work in. And they had to be washed all the time. They didn't wash them as religiously as people wash their clothes today. But a woman who invented the detachable collar so that the collar could be washed, they made millions. They, it was one of the largest industries in the country. Um, I can't speak huh. to the whole history of it, but you can find that. Detachable collars, Troy, New York. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a, the Cluett and Peabody Company was up there. They, uh, they developed sanferizing. They made shirts and collars. So... I'm back to my roots where the textile industry began, Cohoes, New York, um, Troy, New York, all of the towns that had mills on the Hudson River and the Erie Canal and the Mohawk River where there was power. So great. That's my interest. (laughs) And Samantha. I know you're leaving your dream right now, but I would like to, for you to go back to um, years ago, and give me one of your best experiences in, in life and why. Special moments. Um, yeah, maybe. so a few years ago, uh, I was in the mood to go away. I didn't, somebody told me about, uh, oh, I know how it happened. I got an email from the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. It was like a listserv kind of thing. And they talked about uh, being an outdoors woman. There's a, an org- there's a group called BOW, Being an Outdoors Woman. And they advertised a trip for women only to um, Baja, Mexico. And I went on this trip. There were seven women, all ages. None of us knew one another. We um, had our own boat and staff. And we went from uh, from uh, Baja to Santo Espiritu Island. And we camped there. There's no electricity. There's no uh, running water. They brought in a kitchen for us. We had tents. We slept in tents. We scubaed, snorkeled, climbed, kayaked um, with this fabulous group of women. That was like a bucket list kind of a thing to do. Awesome. You know, I may not do it again. I could. Um, 
so that was a really memorable trip. And this year, I'm going to Nice with on Thanksgiving week with um, four with three friends, three other women. Uh, we're staying in an apartment that's owned by one of my colleagues on my college board, who rents it out when she's not there through an agent in Nice. And it's four bedrooms, two bathrooms, a balcony, penthouse, oh, right in the center of Nice. <laughs> and that's my, it's my big birthday party. Oh, that's, so. that's great. Happy early that's birthday. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of traveling I like to do. Can you give us a final thought, maybe as you look back on your work or where you are now, where you came from, personal experience, anything you want to leave our listeners with as a message? The message is not to be afraid. Um, get joy from what you do. Surround yourself with pe- positive people. Uh, try to give back. And have fun. That's great. And how can our listeners connect with you and your business? Where can they find you? Or what's the best way to reach you? They can reach me at Ronnie at Shamron.com. They can, uh, yeah, that's the best way to reach me. That's my only one and only email. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ronnie, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. And for Samantha Cortez. Adios. I'm Stephanie Benedetto. Go change the world, everyone. Thanks for listening. Back soon on Material Is Your Business. This has been Material Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at materialisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, materialisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.